I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll talk all about the baby food shortage in the United States. We'll talk ASEAN Summit and the TRIPS waiver at the WTO, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, The Trade Guys are back, and we have a bonafide baby formula crisis in America. President had to enact the DPA, Defense Production Act, just a couple days ago to get this rolling again. It doesn't seem immediately clear that the baby of formula strategy is a trade issue, but is it? And why is it? Well, it's a lot of things that are not being reported on. First thing is, even though it's in the news, this is not a new problem. In fact, out-of-stocks and baby formula were above 10% at retail a year ago. So they're at 40% now, which is, which is a crisis level. But there's been a consistent inability of the industry to supply enough baby formula for the shelves. And so this didn't come out of nowhere. It's also not a single plant issue, as best I can tell. There's been a lot of focus on uh, Abbott Health's plant in Sturgis, Michigan, uh, which was closed uh, in uh, uh, for a, and did a voluntary recall of products along with uh, was supervised by the FDA and the CDC beginning in about February. And the plant is just now reopening. They make Enfamel and others. But it's only one plant in the system. And my experience is if you're in the manufacturing business, you deal with plant closures a lot. I worked for a company that owned Folgers Coffee. We had a great facility in New Orleans, still have a great facility in New Orleans, Louisiana. And then we had this little thing called Katrina to deal with. Yeah. So these, these kinds of things happen in manufacturing and you basically overcome them. Uh, but in this case, the problem that is genuine and no one is describing is you've had this ongoing sort of flashing demand signal where there's not enough product for the market for about a year now, and there's been no response. Usually, when you get a demand signal, one of two things happens. You get new entrants to the market, or you get substitutes, and neither one has happened here. And so for me, the real issue is, why is it that nobody has entered the baby food market, either with substitutes that are satisfactory to the consumer, or with a new firm entering? And it has to do with both trade and regulatory matters. It's got a complicated background, but it'll be pretty obvious. When it comes to regulation, the Food and Drug Administration regulates foods, drugs, cosmetics. They don't do it all the same. And in fact, for most cosmetics and most food, it's a relatively lighter regulatory regime, which is called post-market surveillance. Manufacturers make changes from approved ingredients all the time, and they adjust their formulas. As long as it meets basic safety testing that's part of the regulatory framework, everything's fine. Now, drugs are regulated in a much more stringent manner. It's called pre-market approval. And it happens that infant formula, for a whole series of reasons that were probably wise at the time, is regulated like a drug. You have to have pre-market approval for any changes in the formula. The formula is approved as it is by FDA. There's basically very little variance. Packaging and labeling is closely regulated by FDA. We all think of it as a food and basically powdered milk. It's actually a drug when it comes to the degree of regulation. Same with plant inspections. It's a much more stringent standard for a lot of reasons. And not questioning those reasons, but that's part of it. And because of this drug regulation, there aren't a lot of substitutes available. 
Now, what's the trade issue? The trade issue is this is basically a dairy product. So it's essentially non-fat milk. And the dairy industry is one that has for probably about almost 100 years has had a supply management program, a price support program that in some ways shorts the market. And like many supply management program, whether it's sugar or peanuts or whatever it might be, the USDA operates the domestic program, but there's still relatively high protection on the market. So in the case of infant formula, because it's basically a powdered milk, there's a 17.5% tariff on imports. That's really all you need to know here. So demand signals flashing all year. No new companies have entered the market. Well, think of yourself. You're pitching the board on, hey, I got a great idea. Let's enter the baby food market. Now, let me tell you about it. There are four companies who are all established who have 98% of the market share. Gee, that doesn't sound too good. Well, there's more. About half the market is run through a program at the USDA called WIC, or Women, Infants, and Children. It's a feeding program for impoverished moms, basically. But that's half of formula purchases. And that's done on a state-by-state single brand auction that's done a year. So there's single sourcing for half the market. So it's much smaller than you think it is. Well, there's the bad news. And we've got to take on and build up all this regulatory apparatus. And then if we're importing the product, we've got to pay a 17% tariff. Well, you'd be laughed out of the boardroom if you proposed entering a market like this. So there are no new entrants coming into the market. That just leaves it to the incumbents. What about substitutes? Well, it turns out safe and effective baby food formula is sold over most of the developed world. And certainly Europe and Canada have very high regulatory standards. They have competent agencies. There's no evidence that their food is anything but safe and effective. Why not just import Canadian or European formula? Well, two reasons. One, there's a 17.5% tariff, so you've got to deal with the tariff. But more importantly, anything that varies even slightly in the formulation from what FDA has approved because it's treated like a drug means that it would be declared misbranded and prevented from entering commerce by the customs authorities. You've got to either deal with the regulatory side and or the tariff side to get relief from the market. Now, I think there's some of those steps are on the way. The first thing I would have done, just knowing the industry, would have been to convene the industry in Europe, United States, Canada, and the three regulatory bodies and come up with some agreement, temporary agreement on equivalence. You know, because some of these changes are, are very small. Europe uses sugar to sweeten the formula. The United States uses high fructose corn syrup. Both are safe, but because one's there and not the other in the U.S. regulation, that would be misbranding. So stuff you would think it wouldn't matter because it's regulated as a drug, it does. But what I do is find a way to, to agree on equivalence, allow the entry with FDA approval of foreign brands, and then for the period of time there's a shortage, I'd suspend the tariffs. But that's sort of why you have demand signals, but no supply to solve the problem. I think at this point, Scott, we've got so much high fructose corn syrup in this country that it's like filling the Mississippi River from top to bottom. <laughs> one, one would think. It's only because we prohibit sugar from entering in large quantities, but that's for sure. Man, I don't think people realize how complex of an issue it actually is. And, and now it's in the news. I think it'll get fixed. I do think there's some sincere efforts, both on the part of the administration and on Congress, to try to get the regulatory relief, at least temporarily, that will get this problem solved. But it's one of those things that it is a trade problem. It's like that old Saturday Night Live commercial. It's a floor wax. No, it's a dessert topping. 
Turns out it's both. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trade it's problem and it's a drug regulation problem all at the same time. It's scary, though, right now, because it's actually a national security problem in the United States. Isn't it, Bill? It's a public health problem. Yeah. I, think. Yeah. I don't think it's a security problem. The thing that I thought was interesting about it, it is an object lesson about supply chains, because it's a reminder that resilience, which is the word of the year, really, doesn't mean reshoring. Because here's a case where we've shored or reshored. Yeah, 98% is made in the U.S. Yeah. It's, it's all in the U.S. and we have these problems. So the people who argue that what we need to do is bring everything back home are you know, missing an important element here. That's not always the answer. This is a case where Scott hinted at this, we would have been better off with a lower tariff and more imports simply to diversify the market. So what resilience really means, I think, is not reshoring. It means don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and this is a case where we only had one basket. Right, because I can imagine there's a lot of parents out there that sure would like some fancy French baby food right now. Yeah, or even ordinary Canadian well, baby it, food. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have any at all and you're worried about your baby's survival, it doesn't matter whether it's French or British or Italian or American, I don't think. But what you do want, and I want to put in a good word here for the FDA, which is my wife's first job out of graduate school was at the FDA. I mean, their job is to protect the public health. The point of these regulations is to make sure that the formula that's being sold is not contaminated and is safe. And obviously, they have not done that perfectly. And I think you can also fault them in this case for not moving very quickly to address the problems. But their mission is an important one, and it shouldn't be forgotten in the rush simply to fill shelves. I mean, as a parent, I got to tell you, you know, my kids are older now. and don't I hope baby your kids formula. are off baby formula. They, <laughs> they don't act like it always, but they are. But as a parent, this is like the scariest thing ever. You know, I keep seeing on the news these empty shelves. What do you do if you're a parent and your child drinks baby formula? I know some parents, their kids only drink a specific type of baby formula. What do you do if there's just nothing there? It's a difficult problem. People having to consult their physicians. This is a brittle market, I guess is what I would call it. Yeah. And we've exposed the brittleness of it. And this would be a good time to fix it. The tariffs are preventing product from getting to consumers at a good value. I don't think we need the money. And so I think there's some soul searching the dairy industry ought to do, or I think the advocates for these tariffs. But in the meantime, a more sensible, broad-minded approach toward equivalence would be helpful. I recall trying to harmonize in North American products for the US and Canadian markets. And some of these cosmetic regulations will make your hair turn gray. For instance, we couldn't harmonize one cosmetic because the US requirement was for food grade water in the mixture of making the cosmetic. And Canada, because they adopt European rules, were for pharmaceutical grade water. And because of that change in an inactive ingredient, they weren't seen as equivalent by the regulatory agencies. So I think there's some thinking that we might benefit in the long run if we applied it right now. I don't want the government in the business through the Defense Production Act. I would note that there was a story this morning that the state of New York has an extra 700,000 gallons of hand sanitizer available. They made it using the prison labor, basically. The state of New York went into the, went into the hand sanitizer manufacturing business in 2020 and they still have 700,000 gallons that nobody wanted to buy and they don't know what to do with it. Let's use the manufacturers who know how to make this stuff, find a way to get equivalence accepted as a principle, at least during the crisis, and get some product in people's hands. 
It also makes you wonder what's next. You yeah. know, we've discussed this before and I, I you know, we, we're getting into this sort of whack-a-mole supply chain problem. You know, every week there's something new. We went through the great cream cheese crisis, as I recall, in yep. late February and March. That was a big problem. And, and the, the guacamole crisis. And of course, the semiconductor one is, seems to be long term. And now we have a baby formula one. It does kind of make you wonder which one is next. Scott's right. It's good to try to act prophylactically and prevent these things from repeating and sort of fix the problems. Sometimes you don't know what the problem is until something like this happens, and then you have to scramble to, to fix it. Well, you have to think, like, what's next? Is the United States going to run out of ketchup and hot sauce? Well, we'll probably have too much of the things people wanted six months ago. <laughs> yeah. Be- because of the delays in the supply chain. As someone who spent 14 years working for John Hines, I can tell you, we're not going to run out of ketchup. I'm quite Bill, you know how I feel about ketchup. That puts me at, at great ease. It, you can relax about the ketchup. And my friends in New Orleans, I do not think are going to run out of Crystal Hot Sauce or Tabasco, which is made in Avery Island, Louisiana, anytime soon. So I think we'll be all right. Believe me, nobody ran out of Folgers Coffee, even with Hurricane Katrina. That's right. Production. That's right. Kept the business going. <laughs> New Orleans has the important things in right order. Coffee, hot sauce, you know. Yep. Certain kinds of alcohol. <laughs> Or actually all kinds of alcohol. Yeah, well, when we start having a beer shortage, then you're going to have a revolution, I suspect. But If you had a beer shortage in America, I think the entire LSU nation would rise up and revolt. You'd have a big, big problem. Do you know when LSU goes into town to play another team, when they travel, their fans typically travel with them, and the bars have to get triple or quadruple what they normally would have? Well-documented story. Good to We know. can talk about that another time, though, because I know you guys are anxious to talk about ASEAN. Last week was the ASEAN Summit here in D.C. Bill, what's your assessment of it? Well, there was a photo <laughs> of all of them. You got to see who was short and who was tall. The United States coughed up $150 million in sort of random projects for various different things, all of them good, a lot of them vaguely related to the environment, but not thematically consistent. IPEF, which is the, the elephant in the room, didn't come up, partly because not everybody in, in ASEAN is probably going to join it. There was discussion early on about rolling it out at, at the summit, and they decided not to do that because it was clear that not everybody at the summit was going to join, and it would be awkward to have a summit with announce something that where not everybody was participating. It's going to be rolled out on Monday, and I think next week we'll have a lot more to say about it. Other than that, there was an agreement to move from a, what was it, a, from a strategic partnership to a comprehensive strategic partnership. I'm not sure what the difference is. We have a deadlock in terms of our strategic vision for the region. And what the ASEAN countries want is not what the U.S. wants. So if you step back and look at this, most of these island economies, roughly speaking, don't share our problems. They think the Russia-Ukraine conflict is irrelevant. They care a lot more about tourism. They care a lot more about inflation and things like food insecurity, and they care less about green energy. They care less about getting lectured on labor rights. They worry about China, but they don't want to be forced to take sides. They'd like the U.S. as a counterweight, but ultimately they, they want to hedge between the U.S. and China. So it's an odd mix, and the U.S. has not proposed anything that looks attractive to the ASEAN countries, but we just have a different, different view of what's next in the world. Well, it begs the question, what do the ASEAN countries want versus what the U.S. has to offer? 
Well, one thing for sure they want is they want to trade with, with the United States. The United States is not offering market access. Yeah, the big thing that they want is market access. To be fair about it, there are some things that they're offering that can be attractive. You know, there's four pillars to this proposal, and three of them are going to be run, the negotiations are going to be run by the Commerce Department. Only the trade pillar is going to be run by USTR. And in the commerce pillars, which are infrastructure, decarbonization, uh, supply chain management, there's some interest there because, first of all, the Asian countries would like to be incorporated into American supply chains. Yes. So a lot of their interest is how can we make our parts and components eligible for American automobiles or whatever it is that we're making here. So to the extent that we can talk with them about supply chain problems and anticipating supply chain problems and supply chain management, I think they'll be interested. To the extent that we're willing to spend money to help them decarbonize, they're going to be interested. And I think that's on the table. The one that's a little more complicated, digital trade. I think people are of two minds about that. There's some people that think that they ought to refocus the IPF primarily on a digital trade agreement. That would get more enthusiasm. I think that's probably wrong. The fundamentals of a digital trade agreement are a commitment for free flow of information and a commitment not to require data localization. That is, not to require companies to store their data in the country. If you're a bank, for example, it's absolutely critical not to do that. Those are hard commitments for some countries. They're hard commitments for non-democracies, of which there are some in the region. And they're tough commitments even for countries that are more democratic. So it's not clear to me which way that's going to go. I mean, and the countries are conflicted. They see digitization, digital trade as a wave of the present, not to mention the wave of the future. And they very much want to be involved in that. But they're wary about the commitments that come along with it. So mixed bag. So something we've discussed quite a bit recently is whether these broader initiatives are valuable as formal trade agreements. What do you guys think about that? Well, I've always thought they're valuable. I think in a globalized economy, which I don't think we're unwinding globalization. I mean, we may be in a two steps forward, one step back framework, but it's not going away because the tools that enabled it, which are massive reductions in the cost of transportation, communication, those haven't gone away. The internet's not going to be uninvented. So the tools are all there. And I think what we've learned over the years is that trade is an engine of growth and job creation. My frustration with the administration has been that they're inside the IPEF or outside IPEF, they're not very interested in market access. And it was uh, Senator Cantwell who said it very well when Ambassador Tai was testifying before the Senate Finance Committee. She said, you know, I'm for the environment. I'm for sustainability. I'm for worker rights. But can't we be for market access too? Can't we be for cutting tariffs too? Washington State is a huge agriculture exporter. They want to sell, you know, more cherries, more wheat, uh, other products. Hops is actually another one uh, in Asia. And she's right. You know, we ought to be able to do both of these things at the same time. And the administration, I think, is missing some opportunities on that. Yeah, look, I think it's good to have these forums where you can work out problems. I've spent a long time with the APEC business advisory councils. And APEC was pretty useful at problem solving and getting countries to work together. But if talk is good, bargaining and trade is better because that creates winners on both sides and the mutual benefit creates higher living standards. So I'd like to do both the forums and some real reciprocal trade. All right, guys, finally, we have one last issue we can talk about today. We have time to talk about today. 
And I want to revisit an issue we've discussed much more frequently last summer, which is the TRIPS waiver at the WTO. Was it a good idea then? And is it a good idea now? It was a bad idea then. We've talked about that. But something very interesting has happened this last week that intrigues me. And it's sort of a semi-weedy negotiating thing, but it's going to influence how all this turns out. The Chinese made what was for them a classic Chinese move. And I've encountered this with the Chinese before. It was a move in which basically they get the form and everybody else gets the substance. And sort of it's a face-saving workout. What had happened was that there was a, a small group, the EU, the US, basically India and South Africa, who negotiated a compromise. And like all good compromises, it was attacked from both sides as being not good enough, which is probably a clue that it was a decent compromise. But one element of it, which is embodied in a footnote, said that the ability to waive the IP constraints and to take advantage of the waiver was limited. And countries that were excluded included basically developed countries, but also included developing countries that already were accounting for more than 10% of the global exports of vaccine. Well, there's only one country in that category, uh, and that's China. And so basically what this proposed footnote did, everything's in brackets, so it's not final, but what this proposed footnote did was say that China can't take advantage of the waiver. So the Chinese announced that that was troubling. But then their second move was classic Chinese to come up with the proposal that we will voluntarily commit not to use the waiver if you remove the provision that says we can't use the waiver. So in other words, get rid of the language that excludes us, but we will voluntarily exclude ourselves, which is a classic Chinese face-saving solution. The objectionable language that's pointed at them goes away. They in turn agree to behave the way we want. This then took, I think, kind of an interesting turn when the United States announced that that wasn't good enough, that they want clarity and they want the waiver to specifically exclude China. And there it sits. And it seems to me this may end up in the category of an historic missed opportunity. The pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure, is happy because if this whole thing goes down the rain, it'll be fine with them. Hmm. Frankly, it'll be fine with me. And, you know, the thing that not very many people are talking about is it's really too late to make a difference anyway. If they were going to do this, they should have done this two years ago. And now here we are. So we're kind of arguing in in the abstract. But if you're in the mode of saying, can't we make a deal? There was a deal right there to be made. And the United States stepped all over it. From a policy point of view, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, Bill, my wife has been offering me a waiver if I'll behave the way she wants me to behave. (laughs) That's not Don't quite the way take it. it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, thinking of, take I'm it. thinking of taking it, yes. <laughs> but, you know, look, Bill's right about the substance. This agreement doesn't fix the non-problem. Manufacturing has never been the rate-limiting factor in any vaccine program. It's distribution. They've always been working on the wrong thing. So if it fails, it's of no substantive consequence for the health of the world. Tactically, I think that the administration managed to find a really effective way to 86 this thing, which is blame it on China. And I think by not agreeing to the footnote change as China has magnanimously proposed, it's an easy way to tank the whole thing, which is probably not a bad outcome. I want to make one other point, which is the the director general herself is putting a lot of prestige on the line in resolving this issue. And I think that's dangerous given what the world is facing 
in terms of food shortages. I think the WTO, unless they're working wholeheartedly on food security issues and maybe even energy security issues, which is, which is not their, their ballywick. It's not part of the WTO, but food insecurity is a big problem. I think they're whistling past the graveyard talking about what should have been on, on, uh, on vaccines. I would hope that they'll ask the WTO ambassador from Sri Lanka how big a priority the uh, TRIPS agreement is right at the moment, because they're burning you know, senior ministers' homes to the ground because of food and, and fuel shortages. I hope they know what they're doing, but I'm, I'm fearful. Gentlemen, I think that's a good note to end on. We are not fearful as the trade guys. We trade guys soldier on. We will go for it. And we will be back next week to soldier on. <laughs> Thanks, guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.